Good morning, everybody. Those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland. And, and two weeks ago, we finished off our series on Joseph. And so today, I'm going to start a new series. And I'm going to uh, preach a series on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And those of you who are uh, familiar with your Bibles in the book of Revelation, and you should be, uh, sometime it'd be great to do a whole series on the, uh, or a series on the whole book. But I'm just going to do the first three chapters, and those of you who are familiar at all with the first three chapters of Revelation, it, is, uh, it consists of, of letters to seven specific churches, letters that are being written by the Apostle John, but it's not just the Apostle John speaking, it's Jesus actually speaking through John to these seven specific churches that were in uh, what was the Roman province that was called Asia, it would be today modern-day Turkey. And, uh, but it's seven specific letters to seven specific local churches at that time, and it is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful and one of the most relevant pieces of scripture for local churches today because the letters are actually to specific local churches, just like us. And each one of these local churches has stuff in it, good and bad, that we could find going on here at Southland as well and in our lives. And, uh, and there is so much in there about Jesus and about God and who he is and how he feels about us and what the church is supposed to be uh, about and like and what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to live in our lives. It's just a powerful few chapters. I would encourage you uh, this week um, for your devotions, uh, if you want to read those first three chapters, just get yourself familiar, and then we're going to go through it. Now, uh, for those of you who are new here, just, just to warn you, I'll just give you the warning up front. You might come from a church where they always do these neat and tidy messages uh, series, so you have like a four-part series about this, and you have a six-part series about that and all that sort of stuff, and here at Southland, you just have to get used to, we just have no idea, okay? So... <laughs> It's just, we're not that neat and tidy. We're not that smart, maybe. I don't know. Like, I, all these pastors, and, and they just plan out these wonderful series, and I just get started, and I, I can't do it. So uh, how long will this go? No idea, okay? Um, <laughs> it will be broken up. It will be broken up because, again, that's just something else we do here at Southland. Like, we'll do this series, and in November, I'm not speaking for three weekends because uh, uh, I've, I'm doing a bunch of school ministers uh, teaching during those weeks, and so Stefan and Ray Yoder are going to be going, and so if, if you want to plan your vacations, you want to do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but, but we don't, so they're not going to speak on Revelation. They have their own. They have powerful messages. Steph's going to talk about some stuff already that's just awesome. And, and Ray Yoder has got just an amazing, really practical message as well coming up. So they're not going to do it. So this is how we do it itself. And if you're new here, I start a series and I just kind of go on and off as I'm preaching till whenever. I'll probably go into the new year past Christmas. At Christmas time, we'll preach some Christmas messages. But as it's going, this will be the series uh, for the next little while. We're going to look at those first three chapters. I think they're really powerful. And so, uh, but today, we're going to just be in the first chapter of those three, and we're only going to get through uh, three verses. It's just actually the greeting, okay, from uh, Jesus to the churches. And uh, yeah, 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 love. just wait till you see what's in there, okay? We could turn that into a month-long series, but uh, let's pray and then let's get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we love you, and you are awesome, and everything is about you. Absolutely everything. This message is about you, these letters are about you, and all of life and existence is about you. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that you would help me as I'm speaking here out of your word to communicate how amazing you are to everyone here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A little bit of background, uh, book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John, like I said before. It's written from a little island called Patmos, and I've, I've got a picture up there of Patmos and a map of it. Hopefully you can see it. It's kind of small, but uh, Patmos was a little island in the middle of nowhere, and, and it's just a rocky, barren island. You can kind of get a picture of it from that picture there. It's 40 miles from the nearest point of civilization. And, uh, and I mean, even nowadays by boat, it would take a few hours to get there. I can't imagine by sailboat uh, back in uh, John's day, it would have been very hard to get there. But that's where he wrote the whole book of Revelation from, from the island of Patmos. We see this in verse, in verse 9. It's going to come up on the screen there. I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. And Patmos, again, is this little island. It's off of what today is modern-day Turkey, but in those days was the Roman province called Asia. And uh, John was not there because he was taking a vacation. 
He was not there because he thought that would be good soil to plant a new church. He was there because he had to be there. The Romans put him there, as he says here, because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. In other words, the Romans wanted to get rid of him. In fact, uh, church uh, history, early church counts tell us that Patmos wasn't the Romans' first choice. Their first choice was actually to boil him alive in oil and kill him, but he wouldn't die okay? And so they took him out, and he was still alive and singing God's praises, and, uh, and so they said, well, we got to do something with this guy because he's too effective with the gospel, and he was working with a number of churches, as we're going to see as we get further into this ser- series, these seven churches in Asia, which were key churches out of which many other churches were coming, but he was so effective with the gospel and with advancing uh, the kingdom there in Rome that this and this guy, they finally, let's just put him on a barren rock in the middle of nowhere, and then, you know, then we'll put a stop to his ministry. And of course, it's there that he writes the book of Revelation, and, and we get another book of the Bible, so they just couldn't stop him. And, you know, one of the amazing things, before we get into this, you have to get just a little bit of the mindset, uh, the kind of person John was behind this book. And so as we're going through these chapters over the next however long, the, you have to get the mindset of who John is and what's going on. He's on this island of Patmos. The Romans have put them there, put him there. He can't, uh, you know, they, they, they put him there because they couldn't kill him. They're trying to stop him from spreading the gospel. You have to realize how old this guy is when all this is happening, okay? The book of Revelation was written somewhere in the 90s AD, like almost the end of the first century AD, okay? That's more than 60 years after Jesus died on the cross, okay? So we don't know exactly how, long, how old John was, but when he wrote this book, he is probably in his 90s. If he's not in his 90s or well in his 90s, he's very close to 90, okay? This is a very old man, okay? 90 years old, okay? 90 years old, and he's still such a threat to the Roman Empire that they've got to put him out here, okay? Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment because, again, you, ha- you have to enter into a little bit of the mindset. This is the mindset of the man writing the book of Revelation. 90 years old, and he's not coasting. I mean, isn't this totally different than, you know, us in the West, how we kind of view our lives? We view our lives as sort of, you know, you kind of build up in your middle, you know, in your middle years, you kind of really work hard, but the whole reason you're working so hard in your 30s and 40s and 50s is because you want to coast the last few decades of your life. Isn't that true? We want to, we want to have this big build. That's how our culture is set up. We want, to, we want to build up, really work hard, so that at the end of our lives, we can kind of enjoy ourselves just a bit. And there's nothing wrong with having a bit of enjoyment in life and, and that sort of thing. But I want you to see how flipped John's mindset is and the mindset of the people who are in the early church. He's 90 years old, and he's still pushing so hard. I mean, John, at some point, just take a vacation. Well, there's no need to be persecuted anymore, okay? He's 90 years old. If I still have breath, I'm still serving Jesus. That's his outlook on life. If I'm still alive, every day is a gift from Jesus. I exist for him. If I'm 90, I'm going to give him whatever I have when I'm 90. And he's still such a threat to the empire that they've got to put him out on a bare rock to try and, and make him be quiet. Now, that's not actually just for old people. Some of you might be sitting here today and you're thinking, oh, way to, way to get those old people, Chris. I'm not going after the old people here. <laughs> this is a whole different way of looking at life that actually needs to infect us at every age and stage of life we're at. Every age and stage of life we're at. We have this picture of our lives that basically, and we would never say it like this, but basically the way we live it is, my life belongs to me, And so I have all these things I'm shooting for, vacations and a nice house, and I want to retire, and I want to do this. And then what we do is we, under the umbrella of this is my life, and and we call it my life, under the umbrella of this is my life, and these are all the things I want to do, I also fit in some service for Jesus. And we fit in a little bit of service for Jesus because we just want to feel good about ourselves that we're following him. And so we, we fit in serving Jesus with everything else we're doing under the umbrella of my life and we feel good about ourselves on following Jesus. And what we see here, an example here in John is a completely flipped worldview, completely opposite, which is every day I have is a gift from God and so my, prime exists, my primary reason for existing is to serve Jesus. I don't fit Jesus in with everything else. Jesus is everything, and whatever I have, I give it to him. Now, you might be taking that wrong. You might be thinking, oh, Chris is against retirement. Chris is against vacations. Chris is against ever enjoying anything in your life. You should just always serve in the church. No. 
I go on vacations every year with my kids. Two to three weeks we go to southern Ontario, and it's pure fun, unadulterated fun and being out in nature, and it's just a blast. And I'm not against retirement. I mean, there's just, your body, as your physical body gets older, I mean, even John, there's no way he still had the energy and vigor at 90 that he had when he was 35. There's no question. As we get older, we have less energy, we have less vigor, we have less physical capacity, and there comes a time in your life where you were working this certain career for so many decades, and now your, your physical body just can't handle it anymore. And so you, you retire, okay? And I'm not against, you know, retiring because you just can't do what you used to do. But the difference is this. When it's your life, you fit Jesus in with everything else. You fit Jesus in with vacation and retirement and everything else you're living for. When you have a, an Apostle John early church mentality that it's all about Jesus, it's not necessarily that you never go on a vacation or you don't retire or anything like that. It's that those things now don't, it's not fitting Jesus in with those things. Those things are serving, helping me to serve Jesus better. So rather than me living my life now for retirement so I can coast at the end of my life, rather I retire from my job so that I can give what physical capacity and energy I do have to serving him. I don't go on vacation because I'm living for vacation and I'm fitting Jesus in with my vacations. I go on vacation so that I can recharge and reload so I can serve Jesus better. It's a totally different mindset and we see it with John he's not coasting 90 years old and every day is a gift from Jesus and if he's going to give me breath today I'm going to give him whatever I have at 90 years old I'm going to give him my all and at every stage of life we give Jesus whatever we have and at every stage we have different capacities we have different amounts of time available to us like when you have kids you know it's different than when you're single when you're you know 70 it's different than when you're 40 there's different capacity, different energy, different ability, different availability, all that sort of stuff. But wherever, whichever stage you're at, it's all about Jesus. I give whatever I have. So when I'm 90, we're not living our lives with the idea that at a certain age, I'm just got to work real hard till I get to that age, and after that, I can coast the good life. No, no. I'm going to live to my very last breath. I'm going to serve Jesus with everything that's in me. That's the life that, that the Apostle John exhibited for us, and that's the mindset out of which the book of Revelation comes, and it's the mindset we as Christians are called to. In fact, it's really an oxymoron to, to, to you know, have a Christian who's retired from ministry. You know, to, to retire, I mean, to retire from your job, to retire from formal ministry, sure, but to retire from serving Jesus? It's an oxymoron, because what is a Christian, a Christian, someone whose life belongs to Jesus? That doesn't exist. A Christian who isn't giving everything to Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so they put the Apostle John on the, on the island of Patmos, and he's on this bare little rock. It's about 16 miles square. There's nothing there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. They put him there, and you would think, well, now, John, you can finally relax. Like, now, John, you can finally take it easy. There's nothing more you can do for Jesus here. Kick your feet up, and now it's time to just rest and coast into death. And John says, well, if you're going to take everything else away from me, but you won't take my pen, I'll serve God with that. Like, that's his mentality. I mean, just what, wherever I am, whatever I have, I'm just going to give that to Jesus. Okay, so you take everything else away from me, you put me on a bare rock, I can't actually preach in the churches or spread the gospel, or, but, but I have a pen, I'll serve Jesus with that. And he's walking with the Lord, and Jesus gives him this powerful, powerful revelation, which will become what we now call the book of Revelation, which will eventually become a part of what we now have and what we call the Bible, and will impact hundreds of millions of Christians for 2,000 plus years until now. And so we, here we are with the book of Revelation. And so let's dive into this now, and we're going to dive into his greeting, okay? Many people, when they teach these first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, they jump straight to chapter two, which is when Jesus, through John, starts speaking to the specific churches. He speaks to Ephesus and the different Smyrna and per Pergamon and all those different things. He speaks to those churches, which we'll get there as well. But they skip over chapter one, which is the greeting. It's all part of the letter, okay? And so we're not going to jump straight to Jesus' address to the churches. You can't understand what he's saying in those you know, the, when he's talking to the churches, unless we get the greeting first. It's all part of the, part of the letter. And so we're going to start with the greeting here. Verse 4, and we're going to find out some powerful things about Jesus and, and about God, and, and it's all about him. John, verse 4, John, 
to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of kings on earth. And like I said before, just here, I mean, John has spent so much time walking with Jesus. I mean, he knows God so well. He's had such depths of revelation of who God is that even in his intro, he can't just say, greetings from God. He, he can't just say it like that. He just knows too much about God. He knows God too well. And so he's going to talk about God. We have in two verses right away, we have enough titles and descriptions of God here. We could spend a whole month series just going through each of these things. And I'm not even going to touch on all. He calls Jesus three things. He calls Jesus the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. We could do messages on each of those, and I'm not even going to touch on them today. But who Jesus is, this is, this is, this is deep stuff. John knows God. And so he passes on this greeting, and, and of course the greeting isn't from, it's not like a normal letter. This letter is sort of being written, it's being written by John, it's from John, and it's from Jesus through John. And like in a normal letter, you would just write grace and peace to you from me. Right? This is from me. But John's not writing just from me, he's writing from Jesus through him. And so he doesn't say, the greeting isn't from John, it's John writing, but the greeting isn't from John. The greeting is from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So we actually have a greeting here from three persons. Well, what's going on there? Why a greeting from these different persons? In fact, we have more than three persons. We've got seven spirits there in the middle. We've got multiple things going on here. And before we can get into the letters, we, we first have to figure out who this is that's speaking to the churches. Well, Jesus Christ, that one's obvious, right? So Jesus is saying hi, but why didn't he just say hi from Jesus? Like, why, why the other stuff? Who are the seven spirits who are before God's throne? This is right at the beginning of the letter. If we don't know this, we're not going to understand what the letter is standing on. And who is this person who is and who was and who is to come? Well, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably know that the title, him who is and who was and who is to come, is certainly something that can only be applied to God. Um, couldn't be just a human being. We don't know who the seven spirits are. But one of the things you might not know is that when John says greetings from him who is and who was and who is to come, this is actually a direct reference to the divine name of God from the Old Testament, which in Hebrew is Yahweh. Okay? Now, this is very important. I talked a lot about the divine name Yahweh in my series on Jesus last year, um, but we have to pick it up here for just a little bit because, again, this is really important. This is the foundation for all the letters. We first have to understand, you can't understand the practical stuff until you first understand who God is. And this is Jesus introducing himself to us. He wants us to know this about him. And so we don't just get grace and peace to you from God. We get grace and peace to you from these persons. And one of them is him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that him who is and who was and who is to come is a direct reference to the divine name of God, which we find in Exodus 3.14, famous passage, where God introduced himself to Moses and to the entire human race for the first time as Yahweh, okay? Yahweh. And like I said, we talked about this in the, in the series I did on Jesus. We talked a lot about that, the divine name Yahweh, that God's name is not God, okay? God's name is not God. The word God, it's three letters, G-O-D. It's a title. It describes the category that God is in. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who's always existed. But the title God, G-O-D, isn't God's name. It's the same thing with me, my gender is male, okay, or man, okay? But my name is not man. It's not high man, okay? Man puts me in a category. It's who I am, okay? Um, and there are things that go along with that, okay? So now God is a title of who he is. You could also put another title on me, pastor. But pastor isn't my name. Pastor is what I do, okay? So those are titles, but they're not my name. My name is Chris. That's my name. And Chris is much more personal. It's who I am. It's not just what I do. It's not just what category I, f I fit into. It's who I am. It's the same with Yahweh. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses and to the human race for the first time, he revealed his personal name, not just his title, God, which is the category he's in, the one who made everything and who has always existed. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. His name is Yahweh. Now, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. That's his name. And by the way, that name was so holy, the Jews would not even dare to write it or speak it. The divine name, they would say God. That was no problem because, again, God isn't God's name, but they wouldn't say Yahweh. They wouldn't even write it down because that just to say the name of God was so holy to them. 
Okay, and so that was where we get introduced to that name Yahweh for the first time was Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Now, in English, Yahweh is a Hebrew word. In English, we translate Yahweh as I am who I am. Okay, and actually there's different ways how it could be. It basically, it's hard to translate a name exactly. Yahweh is his name. In English, it kind of means I am who I am. I am the one who is. I am the one who is being. I, it's sort of got this idea of the one, all existence comes from him. He's eternal. He, it's, he's never not been. He just exists, and it all comes from him. I am who I am, okay? So you say, well, what does this have to do with Revelation 1 and him who is and who was and who is to become? Well, the thing about Revelation you have to understand is that John did not write the book of Revelation in English, obviously, Okay? And he also didn't write the book of Revelation in Hebrew, which is the language that Moses was speaking to God in. And so because he didn't write the, the book in Hebrew, of course we're not going to see the name Yahweh anywhere. In fact, you won't find the name Yahweh anywhere in the New Testament explicitly because the New Testament is written in Greek. Most of the Jews in the New Testament times uh, were speaking Greek more than Hebrew, okay? Because it was a Greek-speaking world and the Roman Empire functioned in the Greek and Latin uh, primarily. And so he wrote the book of Revelation in Greek. And so you're not going to find the name Yahweh in the Old Testament because they, that's a Hebrew word. And so they would use, and, and we could do a whole series on that, which is all the different ways that the New Testament writers talk about the divine name Yahweh without using that Hebrew word. And they're talking about it in Greek. And so John isn't going to put the word Yahweh down. He's also not going to put I am who I am because that's English. In Greek, he writes, this greeting is from, first of all, it's from Jesus and it's from from the seven spirits who are before the throne, but the first one is from Ha'on. Now again, reading, because we've got three different languages in play here. We've got Hebrew is in the Old Testament, Greek is in the New Testament. We're reading this in English. We kind of miss it. But if you were a Greek-speaking Jew in John's time, when John writes, this greeting is from Ha'on, it would take you back to something very quickly because, again, most of the Jews in John's day were reading their Old Testament in Greek. They were reading a Greek translation of the Hebrew. They weren't reading Hebrew much anymore, not as much. And if you go back to Exodus 3.14, the divine name, my name is Yahweh, I am who I am in English, when God introduces his, himself by his name to Moses in Greek, the translation that they used in the Greek Old Testament for Yahweh is the words ha-on, the one who is, I am who I am. And so when John says in Revelation 1 verse 4, the beginning of this letter to the churches, who is this from? We just kind of skim over it. Well, it's from Jesus, and then we, well, a bunch of other stuff. No idea what that's all about. We just kind of focus on Jesus, and we'll just leave it at that. But Jesus doesn't want this just to be from Jesus, or he would have just written that it was from him. It's not just from Jesus. It's from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits uh, who are before his throne, and from Jesus. And so when we get this greeting, it's important that we know who it's from. It's from, in the Greek, ha-on, which any of the Greek-speaking Jews who would have read this, they would have immediately hearkened back to Exodus 3.14. This is from Yahweh himself. This is from Yahweh. This letter, these letters to the churches, and it would have blown. If you were a Jewish-speaking, or, or a Jewish believer, sorry, uh, uh, reading this, this would have stunned you. This is the name you don't even pronounce. This is the name you don't speak. You don't say it. You don't write it. And he is writing a letter. He is sending you greetings. Yahweh himself is sending you grace and peace and these specific letters. So grace and peace to you, okay? Grace and peace to you from, from Yahweh. If you go to the next screen there, we now have, it's, it's really from three, three persons here or whatever we have from Yahweh. The screen is from Yahweh. It's from Jesus Christ. Who are the seven spirits than who are before the throne, okay? So these are the, these are the who, are, who is saying hello to us in this letter, and these are who is writing this letter to us. Um, some theologians have taken the seven spirits, and they said, hey, it's seven very special angels. It's seven, you know, cherubim. It's seven seraphim. It's whatever, and they've attached. But the fact of the matter is that almost no theologians accept that anymore, and I certainly do not. And the reason is because clearly here, this has got to be a reference to the Trinity, does it not? I mean, how do you have a greeting to the churches from Yahweh, the divine name, the holy name Yahweh of God himself, and from Jesus Christ, who, ha who has a name above every other name. His name was raised up to the same level as Yahweh. Yahweh and Jesus Christ are the two, you know, holy divine names of God now. 
So you have a greeting from Yahweh, you have a greeting from Jesus, and then in the middle you have a greeting to the churches that this letter is from a, you know, some guys in front of the throne. Like no disrespect to angels, but nobody gets fit into the identity of God between Yahweh and Jesus except God himself. No one's exalted that high. No angel is powerful enough or amazing enough to get thrown in between Yahweh and Jesus in a greeting like this. And so the re- that's for that reason, most... Uh, uh, Commentators and theologians now are, you fully agree that this has to be the Trinity speaking here and that the seven spirits of God is a reference. And I'm giving you a key, by the way, now for the whole book of Revelation because you'll see the seven spirits pop up a lot, the seven thunders that speak from God. And they're always very close to God and they, all this sort of stuff. The seven spirits, when you read that, is actually referring to the Holy Spirit. You say, what? Okay. Okay, so we have one God, we have three persons, and one of the persons is seven spirits. Like, we have major, multiple personality thing happening here in the Godhead. Right? And, and you're wondering, why would I even bring this up in a message? Like, hey, explain this to us. So here, let me explain to you this. There is no explanation. <laughs> you can't get your puny little human mind around this. He is one God, He somehow exists as three persons. Somehow the Holy Spirit, there's a seven to him. He's one Holy Spirit in one God existing as three persons. But this is a letter to us. Now, again, we have, some of us have such practical little minds, right? Practical little minds. Don't talk to me about anything I can't understand. You know, don't, let's leave all the verses out we can't understand. Let's just, we we, we just want to hear things that apply to my practical little life, Right? Just, just give me practical advice for my marriage to make it better. Give me practical advice for my finances. Give me practical advice for, you know, how to deal with that guy at work because I have some ideas and I know they're totally not biblical. And give me some practical ideas, right? For my practical little life, I got these 70 or 80 years here on this planet and I just want practical advice for these practical little years of my life. So why would we talk about something like this? Like, why doesn't John just say, and to our practical little minds, we just think, John, why wouldn't you just say grace and peace to you from God and end it there? Or grace and peace to you from Jesus and end it there? Why make it so confusing? Well, a couple things you have to know about this. First of all, uh, John's not the one in charge here. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is not John being impractical. This is how God wants to introduce himself to the church. See, this is, we just, we just want practical ideas. We just, we're so stuck in our practical little lives, we don't want to be bothered with the mystery and the grandeur of who God is. How would I think about that? I have problems in my finances, and we don't see how it's going to, I just want to think about these little practical things in my life. But God wants a relationship with us and he made us for relationship. And here in these past passages like this, he's, he, this is him desiring to reveal who he is to us. It's like, uh, and, and this should still happen even after you've been married for years, but for some people it dies down. But for sure when you were dating, you know, when you're, when you're dating, you just have this desire to just open up about yourself. Isn't that true? It, I mean, it should carry on later in your marriage too, but for some people it kind of dies down. So I use the dating one. But when you're dating, you, we all know that feeling. You're, you're in love with someone and you want to tell them about yourself. Like you want them to know about your childhood and your history and what your family was like and for, for good or bad. You want them to know what you went through. You, you want to talk about yourself. You want, because we have this urge, this human urge, it's the way God made us. We have this urge to be known. We just want somebody to know who I am and still love me. We, so we want to talk about our feelings. We want to talk about the, our insides. And when, when we're dating, that kind of comes out. And the thing you have to understand is that's just a little shadow. That's what it is to have a relationship with someone. And when we read passages like this, that's God's heart. He doesn't just want to say, signed from God, because he's so much bigger than that. The people reading this book are supposed to be people who love him and who their whole life we say is all about Jesus. It's all about God. We love God. We're following God. And and he says, okay, if you actually do love me, let me pull back the curtain a little bit and show you who I am. I'm not just G-O-D God. You can put me in a box, stamp it with a little title, and you're good to go. I'm way bigger than that. So he pulls back the curtain just a little bit. 
And he says, this is who I am. Hello from the one who is and who is, was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Then he goes into yet more who Jesus Christ is. And he gives us a little peek because it's all about relationship. He wants to show himself to us. And he doesn't want us to have, just have him in, in our little boxes that we can put up in the shelf. And the only time we ever want to think about God is when I have needs in my practical little life. Our whole lives are just, we're just obsessed. We have this short little 70 or 80 years and our whole lives is just spent looking at that 70 or 80 year, years. Just, I just need practical advice. Forget about God. He's so big and he's so mysterious out there. We don't think about that. We just need help for right now in our practical little lives. Just reminds me of goldfish. I don't, I don't like goldfish. <laughs> Some of you like goldfish. It's not a sin. It's just weird, but... You look, you look, you goldfish, you go to people's house, they got a goldfish in a bowl, right? Got this little bowl up somewhere. That little goldfish, all he cares about is life in his little bowl. That's all he cares about. I mean, you just, just give him his food. He just cares about whatever you put, little decorations you put in there, if you clean it. All he cares about is life in his little bowl. That's everything to him. That's not wrong. I mean, you should care about, you know, if you're living in a little fishbowl, you should care about what's in that fishbowl, but that's all he can care about. He has no concept in his little mind, in his little bulgy, weird-looking eyes. <laughs> He's got no concept that there's this huge other reality all around, just outside, just on the other side of the glass. There's this massive, huge other reality, this other world, which is far beyond anything he can imagine from just his little fishbowl. fishbowl. It's not just bigger physical size. It's just beyond everything he can imagine in terms of complexity and wonder, and good, and bad, and just creativity, and just everything. He has no idea. All he cares about is life in his little fishbowl. Just on the outside of that fishbowl is this massive, compared to his fishbowl, almost unending, infinite other reality and world. And in that other infinite reality, almost infinite reality and world, are these creatures called human beings. He has no idea about them. And they are far beyond him in terms of intelligence, for the most part. Um, <laughs> creativity, size, strength, the world they run in, the world they lead and have created and organized. And he does, but he doesn't care about them. He doesn't care about this other world in reality. And he has no idea. All he cares about is his little fishbowl. And he has no idea that his existence in that little fishbowl is absolutely completely determined by this reality out there that's so much bigger than his fishbowl. I mean, those human creatures outside of his fishbowl, they determine how big or how small his fishbowl is going to be. Isn't that true? They determine. He doesn't determine what his fishbowl is. He doesn't, he de they determine how big it's going to be, how small it's going to be. They determine what's going to be in there. They determine when he's going to get fed, if he's going to get fed, how much he's going to get fed. They determine, you know, are we going to put this bowl here or are we going to move it over here? They determine everything about his fishbowl and yet to his little goldfish mind, all that matters is what's on the inside of his fishbowl. And he doesn't realize that that fishbowl is just a tiny speck in this huge other world and that everything in his fishbowl is absolutely dependent on the goings-on of this bigger world. He doesn't care. He doesn't understand. And that's okay because he's just a goldfish. But you and I were not made to be goldfish. We are living, and yet we live like it. We are obsessed with these 70, 80-year-old you know, little lives that we have. Sometimes even less, sometimes maybe just a tiny bit more. And we're just obsessed with the things that go on in there. We don't want to think about this bigger God that's out there. We don't want to think about this reality. But there's this huge reality just on the other side of the glass. We can't physically see it quite yet. We can't physically see it quite yet, but there is this huge other reality that absolutely surrounds us and goes deeper through everything in our lives and will stretch on to eternity. And that reality and this reality are right now on a collision course, and it's get, that collision is getting closer and closer every day. And there is a day coming soon when that reality will collide with this reality, and this reality will be swallowed up in that one entirely for all of eternity. And at the center of it all is this God who blows our minds. He's not just, 
you know, we just put him in a box. He's basically just a guy, another human being who's a lot bigger than us and stronger than us, and he made everything, and he lives up there in heaven. No, no, no. He transcends all of our categories. He is one, yet he exists in three persons. We are one in one. We're just, I'm just one person. I exist as one person. He is somehow three in one. He exists in dimensions and ways and levels and complexity that far outstrip anything our puny little minds can get a hold of, and it's actually all about him. But we're stuck like little goldfish in our little lives, and we don't want to step out of it. And passages like this are our invitation to step out of the goldfish bowl. Passages like this are our invitation. See, a lot of people take the excuse, this is what a lot of Christians do, if I can't understand it, there's no point in thinking about it. If I can't understand the Trinity, how God can be three in one, why does it even matter to me? And we essentially just cross out all these verses and we just read from God, from Jesus, and we don't delve into the names because, hey, we can't comprehend it. Why bother trying? That's the wrong way to look at it. The fact that you cannot comprehend God is not reason to stop thinking about him. It's our invitation to explore more. These are little glimpses. God says, you want to see who I really am? You say you love me. You say you're living for me. You say you believe you're going to live for all of eternity with me. Then let me just give you a little peek behind the curtain. I'm not just G-O-D God. This is who I am. And he exists so much bigger and beyond what we can imagine. And it's our excuse to explore more, to spend more time with him and go, oh, I totally don't get it, but I need more of your Holy Spirit in my heart. I just want to know you more. I'm so glad you're beyond anything I can comprehend. I mean, how boring would eternity be if, if God was so simple that we could grasp him already with our puny little minds right now? What would we do for all of eternity? We'd be bored. I'm just so happy God's beyond that. I'm so happy that compared to him, I'm just a goldfish because it means forever and ever and ever and ever I'm going to be able to explore him and get to know him. And that's why he made us. So passages like this are our invitation to step out of the fishbowl. You know, I I was thinking, I'm a a bit of a science guy. I went to school, and I got my degree in math and physics in university, and and so I I sometimes think about those sorts of things. And I was thinking this past week as I was thinking about God and how he exists in three persons and how he's Yahweh and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all all in one, and, and and it's just so magnificent and glorious, and it's so awesome and so beyond us, so wonderful. And I was thinking about this physical universe that's all around us. And, you know, us human beings have been living now on, on planet Earth for thousands of years. And, uh, and this whole, all these thousands of years, you know, we've been studying the world all around us. We've been studying the physical world that we can see and touch. And especially now, if you look at the last, you know, 100 years, we've had, mil- you know, with science and technology just exploding, in the last, you know, 100 years, we've had millions of people become scientists where the whole life is just studying aspects of the physical world that's all all around us. And the amazing thing is, so we've studied physics and astronomy, we've studied the planets, we've studied the stars, we haven't gotten very far yet. I mean, if you think about it, sometimes we feel real proud of what we've done as human beings, and really, we've, we've only made it to the moon. We've sent a couple of robots to Mars, okay? I mean, we're not even close to really reaching what's out there. Not even close to even scratch the surface. And if you ask any scientist, I mean, millions of scientists over the last hundred years, you know, thousands of years of human progress and studying the world all around us, and you ask any scientist today, how much out of everything there is to know about our universe and about the world around us, how much do we know right now? And they'll tell you, without hesitation, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Never mind the planets and stuff. What about molecules and atoms? We've studied them. We've studied the ocean. We've studied animals. We've studied chemistry. We've studied all these things. And any scientist will tell you, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the known world. You say, well, what what does that have to do with God? Here's what it has to do with him. The God who made all of that, the God who made all of that is bigger and more complex and deeper than what he made. Think about that. You know, the person, the thing that is made is not more complex or deep or wonderful than the one that made it. The the clay is not more beautiful, not more complex than the potter who shaped the clay. 
And if we have thousands of, human, of years of human history behind us of studying as hard as we can, pouring so much energy into science and technology and discovery, and if after all this time and all these millions of people, we have only not even succeeded in barely scratching the surface of all there is to know about the world that God made. Think about this. He made that world to point us to him. It's a setup. For all of eternity, if that's how long it takes us to study the world he made, we're going to spend all of eternity, all of eternity, studying him and getting to know him and talking to him, and it will never, ever get old. All of existence is, is moving in that direction. It's all about knowing him. That's what it's all about. And everything that happens in our practical little lives is only happening as an excuse. That's another thing, whether it's good or bad, it's an excuse to get to know him more. And so we read passages like this, and it's, a, it's an invitation to step out of the fishbowl into this bigger world. You were made to not just think about this tiny little life here on earth. And now the amazing thing is, if we go to the very next line in this passage, the amazing thing is that this God who is so far beyond us, he is just so mind-blowingly outside of all of our categories and you can't squeeze him down and put him in a box. This God who is so far beyond us and all existence is from him and he's so powerful and huge and unimaginable, this God actually loves us. This God actually loves us. If we go to that very next uh, line there, you're going to see this, the very next line. We get this greeting from this God who is somehow three in one. And the very next line is, to him who loves us. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This God who blows our minds actually loves us. He doesn't have to do that. I mean, if you just think about this last week in your life, think about, look at a group of people this big, think of the things we brought in here this morning. Think of the things that we did this last week, the gossip, the slander, the anger, the selfishness, the lust, some, some of the unspeakable things that have been done and thought and said this last week, and we brought them all in here today. And you think, oh my goodness, what have we done? How can we call ourselves Christians, all sort of stuff? And how can a God like this, who's so far beyond us and so holy and so wonderful, how can he loves, love us? And yet, he does. He doesn't have to. We can't make him. There's no one. All existence is from him. Nobody can make him love us. He doesn't owe us anything. We don't have anything over him that he has to love us. He just loves us. To him who loves us, he has feelings of goodwill towards you and towards me. This God who is far beyond, just outside of our fishbowl, if we'll step out and, and just soak in the grandeur of it, he has good feelings towards us. Every single person here this morning, I'm not just talking in general terms. We, we hear, oh yeah, God loves you. And we kind of take it as God loves the church. He loves the person beside me because they're so spiritual. But he doesn't love me. I haven't prayed in like two weeks. I, I don't fast and pray like, you know, you know, Pastor Ray or Pastor this or Pastor that. And so he doesn't love, I'm just kind of a misfit. I'm not really that spiritual. God doesn't pay attention to me. God doesn't love me. He, he loves us in general, but he doesn't love me. And the thing you don't realize is that he has right over you right now today, this morning, there's a gigantic yes in God's heart over you. And the yes is, if you would just say, I want to know you more, Jesus, he says yes. I'd love for you to know me more. I'd love to know you more. I'd love you to be in my presence. I'd love for you to feel my love. There's a gigantic yes in his heart over every single human being here in this room this morning. But many of us just, we can't feel it. We can't feel it. And there's all kinds of reasons why we can't feel it. Many of us have experienced all kinds of rejection in our lives. Many of us have felt rejection. You, you, you're here today, maybe you're adopted and you feel rejected because your birth parents didn't want you. Or you feel rejected here today because your dad never, he never said I love you. You know, he, he called you names, whatever. Your dad rejected, your mom rejected you. You were rejected by a spouse. Spouse left you. You just feel ugly. You feel like you don't measure up. You never measured up for your parents at home. You feel like a failure. You feel like you don't measure up. And so you take those, that rejection you've gotten from human beings and you project it on God. It's all you've ever known is rejection, so God must reject you too. And you just go through your life 
And so, yeah, people, pastor tells you God loves you, and you sing songs about God loves you, but it's never entered into your heart because you can't even believe it. You can't receive it because you project the rejection that you've gotten from everybody else, and you project it on God, and you think when God looks at you this morning, you think, yeah, he looks at you, Chris, because you're a preacher, so you're spiritual in his eyes, and he looks at that person who's in a prayer ministry, and he loves them, and he has a big yes in his heart for them, but he doesn't have a yes over me because I'm not spiritual. I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. And we project that rejection that we've gotten from our parents and we project it onto God. Well, I'm here to tell you something today, and that is this. God is not like your dad. Even if you had a good dad, even if you had a good mom, all of us are just broken people. I'm a broken parent to my kids. So even those of us with the best parents, we just project what we've seen and experienced and felt from other humans. We put it on to God. And I'm here to tell you today, God is not like your dad. He's not like your mom. He's not like that spouse that ran out on you. He's not at all like them. His heart is absolutely, totally, and completely filled with love. And it says here, to him who loves us. Who's in the us? Well, I mean, ultimately, it's all human beings, because we know from other passages of Scripture, it's all, you know, he loves all human beings. But this passage is even more specific. This passage is being written to the local churches. It's the people who call themselves followers of Jesus. It's the people in the body of Christ. If you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus, you are in the us. To him who loves us, all of you, every single one of us here today, Jesus really loves you. And he's not like your dad. He doesn't look at you and say, you don't measure up. You haven't been good enough. You're a failure. He's not like that. And so, yeah, I just want to do, we're, we're actually going to do something a little dorky here today. You ready to do something dorky? I'm getting to be more and more like Pastor Ray as I get older all the time. <laughs> Who cares about some neat little message? Ah, oh, you got a neat little message and three, four little points. He went home and that was neat. That was fun to listen to. Who cares about that? But we need to hear from his God. He is at the center of every single thing. And it's all about him. And he's not like your dad. He's not like your mom. He's not like your spouse. And you need to know that he loves you. Not just us, but he loves you. So we're going to do something real dorky. I want you to pull out a piece of paper. I want you to find a piece of paper right now. Pull it out, okay? And you say, well, I don't have a piece of paper. Take it off the person. Rip a piece off the person who just pulled a piece of paper out beside you, okay? <laughs> you can just say it. You know, this is a family here. We're a big family, but we're, we're just a family. You just... If you hear someone ripping paper behind you, you turn around and say, give me one of those, okay? <laughs> and you get a pen. If you don't have any paper or pen, use your cell phone. It's got to be good for something. Um, <laughs> besides talking to people at all hours of the night about, you know, that you don't even want to connect with. But anyway, that's a whole other message about cell phones. Well, a piece of paper. If you don't have, there's pencils. If you don't have a pen, there's pencils in the chairs ahead of you. Again, you can write this on your cell phone. It doesn't matter to me how you do it. But I'm going to give you three statements to write down. I'm going to give you three statements. We're going to look at them one after another, one at a time. And they're all based on Scripture. I'm, get, I'm going to speak. Today, God is going to speak these statements to you. And they're based on Scripture, so I'm not ma ma making this up. God loves us. We're all in the us. If you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus today, you're, we're all in this us. And God wants to speak something to you today because it's not enough that you just know this in a general sense. You cannot be transformed until you know that God loves you. And so I'm going to give you three short statements. We're going to do them one at a time. I'm going to do them two up here. You're going to put quotation marks around each of these statements because this is not God speaking to all of us. This is God speaking to you. You're going to write, if you're a woman or a girl or whatever, you're a female, you're going to write daughter. If you're a man, boy, male, um, you're going to write son. Okay? Don't write daughter, son. I had to write that up there because it's for all of you. Okay? You're not writing daughter, son. You're writing daughter or son okay? It's not rocket science. <laughs> this is from God to you, okay? First one. If you're a man here today, I want you to write, son, I love you. I want you to have quotation marks around it. This is God speaking to you, and later this week, you're going to take these with you, and you're going to pray, and you're going to ask the Holy Spirit to just bring this to your heart. This is actually what God's saying to you today. It's not just he loves us, he just doesn't just love a group of people. You know, there's people out there, they love to be with groups of people because it's a big rush, but they don't actually love individual people. They don't actually like to be with people or talk to people or have people over or 
help them with their problems. God's not like that. When he says he loves all of us, it's because he loves each of us. And so God says to you this morning, daughter, I love you. Son, I love you. That's God to you today. Second statement. Second statement. Son or daughter, whichever you are, son, I accept you. You are mine. Keep it in quotations. This is God speaking to you. This is based on the Bible. I can just tell you that this is God speaking to you today. This doesn't mean he accepts everything you've ever done. It doesn't mean he loves all the sin you've done. But when my kids mess up, do I not accept them? You know, Charlie messes up or Joy messes up or Eden messes up. Oh, I don't accept you anymore. No, I accept them. They are mine. They're my kids. God says to you this morning, I accept you. You must hear that like an arrow into your spirit, into your heart. I accept you. You are mine, God says to you. Third statement, daughter, you are not, and there's a blank up there, and I want you just to fill it in with whichever of those words feels most true to you. The one that's been hounding you and subconsciously keeping you down. And if there's another word that's better than that, just use that one. God says to you this morning, son, daughter, you are not a failure in my eyes. You are not a loser in my eyes. You are not a disappointment in my eyes. You are not dirty. You are not ugly in, your, in my eyes. I love you. I accept you. God is not saying that to us just as a church, as a big group today. He's saying that to you. Keep it in quotation marks and feel the weight of God speaking his love to you. Son, you are not a failure in my eyes. Then one last statement here. I want you to sign it at the bottom, and, and I want you to keep this with you. Keep it in your Bible this week, whatever it is. I want you to pray this week. I want you to say, Holy Spirit, I want to hear these words into my heart. Not just into my head. I want to hear them into my heart. I want you to write at the bottom, signed with love, God. See, it's one thing to know that God loves you in your head. We all get the right answer there. Oh yeah, God loves me, yeah. Oh yeah, God loves me. God, for God's love the world. I've known that ever since Sunday school. It's one thing to know God loves you in the head, and it's another thing for you to actually be a person who walks with Jesus and is in the presence of Jesus, and he bring, begins to bring that into your heart. Two totally different things. It's like the difference between the guy who knows in his head he's a genius about nutrition and he knows that, you know, it, it, you get energy from food and you get nutrition from food. It's the difference between knowing that food gives you nutrition and food gives you energy and actually just eating the food. You can have a guy who talks to you till he's blue in the face about this vitamin A and vitamin D and all the calories in this food and then he drops beside the table and faints because he hasn't actually eaten the food. And you can have a Christian who goes to church all their life and yes, God loves me. Check it off in the box. I get it right. Yeah, God loves me. For God so loved the world. And he can quote all the verses. But he's never actually experienced the presence of Jesus Christ. He's never actually had Jesus speak to him into his heart and tell him he loves him. And that person is just like the person who knows everything about food but never eats it. And so we've got Christians who are just weak. They're just absolutely obsessed with their fishbowl little lives. And of course they're filled with anxiety and fear and doubt because when all you can see is your little fishbowl life, the little problems you have in that fishbowl life look really big. And they're weak to sin and they're weak to temptation because they never step out of that fishbowl and hear the God of the universe who is at the center of all of our existence say, I love you and it's the thing your heart needs to hear most. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. Those of you here, there's many of you here today, you know what it's like to walk with God. You've walked with God. You know what it's like to get a touch from Jesus and you're talking to him and you just get a little waft, a little touch of his love. I had it again this morning. You just spend some time with him and every, he just gives you that little waft, a little breeze of I love you and I accept you. 
And those of you here who walk with Jesus, not, I'm just not just talking to people who call themselves Christians. Lots of people call themselves Christians and never experience this. They never eat. They never drink from the fountain of God. They never get out of the fishbowl and just look at God. But those of you who have been touched by God, you know this, when God's love fills you, you don't even want to sin anymore. Isn't that true? It's like, oh, he gives you strength, gives you light, gives you purity. That brings me to the next part of this verse. I'm going to underline the next thing there. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Lots of Christians today are obsessed by the fact that God has forgiven them of their sins. And amen to that. Love it. Love the fact that God forgives us of our sins. That's only one side of the coin. That's only half, that's only half the, the, the deal. God didn't just forgive you of your sins so you could carry on being tormented by your bitterness and hate and resentment and lust. He didn't forgive you so you could keep living in that torture. When Jesus is in your life, when he's actually there, there will be a tangible difference in your life. He, you will be in the process. It doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Some people take this verse and they go all weird. He has freed us past tense from our sins, so I'm free of my sins even though I'm still walking them. No, no. This is not about doing mental gymnastics that you're free when you're not free. The point is that if you have Jesus in your life, there will be a tangible difference in your life and you will be being set free if he's actually there. You don't just get forgiveness and not freedom. You can't take one without the other. When you get Jesus in your life, you get forgiveness and the other side of that is freedom, which means you are in the process now and there should be tangible differences that people can see or maybe God's not really there. But there will be tangible differences in your life. You will be being set free. And you say, well, what does that being set free have to do with the love part? The two are totally linked. The two are absolutely and completely totally linked. I told you already that God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. It's the ones who are actually walking with Jesus and not just saying, you know, little slogans, God loves me. They actually walk with him and he speaks that love into their heart. Those are the ones who are set free of their sins. Those are the ones who are being set free of their sins. Because when God's love is in you, it's like rat poison to sin and all that other junk in your life. You step out of your fishbowl and suddenly his love is soaking into your heart and you go, oh, I don't want to do that stuff anymore. If I miss connecting with Jesus for just a couple of days, I, I feel it right away. If I miss walking with Jesus for just a couple days, I'll notice right away in my life, selfishness, anger, pride, it's all there. Things that weren't tempting to me two days ago suddenly look attractive to me, and I know right away, oh, I gotta, I gotta get along with Jesus again. I gotta get along with Jesus again. I need his love. As his love comes into me, it fills me with strength. It changes my desires, and I'm set free by his blood. Well, we're gonna do some worship in just a moment. I'm gonna give you the weekly challenge first. And we're going to do some worship. And worship is so awesome. You know what's so amazing about worship? Some guys, and I'm talking specifically to men here. Some men think worship is a waste of time. I just want to get straight to the message. Like, I want to come in late to the service. I don't really want to sing. I'm not into that, you know, emotional stuff, putting your hands in the air, all that sort of stuff. I'm not really into that. I just want to get the teaching. And that's fishbowl thinking. Big time fishbowl thinking. Worship is when we step out of that fishbowl. It's not about your practical little life. Your life is all about God. There's this, there's, in fact, there's nothing more practical than to realize that there's this massive reality that's all around us right now. We just can't see it with our physical eyes yet. And your whole existence right now is dependent on that reality, on God who is at the center of all reality. In worship, we step out of the fishbowl, we get our minds off of our teensy tiny little problems, and we put them on God where they're supposed to be anyway, who just blows our minds. And we focus on Him, which is the reason for our existence. So we're going to do that in just a moment, but first I just want to give you the weekly challenge. Here's the weekly challenge, three things. Take those I love yous that you, that you wrote down from God here in this message, and just put them in your Bible, take them with you, and I want you to just pray over them this week. And say, Holy Spirit, ah, I've got barriers in my heart. I can't even receive that. But receive it as being from Him. Have a conversation with Him about that. Let the Holy Spirit bring His love deep into your heart. It's the biggest thing. It'll change your life. It will change your life. God will change your life. Second thing, if you do not already have a journaling habit, you don't regularly, when you read your Bible, you don't write anything down. You don't journal. 
You know, there's a reason Pastor Ray's been plugging this stuff on us for years. It, it works. And journaling, you say, what does journaling have to do with who God is and this whole message about God loves you? If you aren't in a conversation with God regularly, you, that's how his, his love comes to us. One of the biggest pipelines is conversation with Him. Saturated in the Word of God. You have a conversation and you're writing down thoughts from Him and you're writing to Him your thoughts. That's a relationship. That's where the love starts to break into your heart. And some of you just need to start a journaling habit. You've heard us say it a hundred times. And there's almost a danger. You hear the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, but you don't ever connect to God and get that love. Every time you hear about the love of God and you never connect with yourself, another layer of crust is built on your hardened, tiny, petty little soul. And you need God to break through that crust of knowing the right things, but not actually being connected to the God who is just outside your little fishbowl life. And journaling is... Just a piece of paper and a pen, or you do it electronically on your phone. I don't care how you do it on your computer, but you write it down. It helps you communicate with God. It helps you, you know, write down his thoughts. And you do this all saturated in the word of God and listening to worship music, whatever it is, but you journal. And some of you, have, you've struggled with journaling. Let me just recommend a book to you right now. The best book I ever read about devotions, about reading the Bible, or about journaling. It's called The Divine Mentor. It's short. It's written by a guy by the name of Wayne Cordero. He's a pastor in Hawaii. Don't we all wish we were called there? Um, and it is intensely practical. I, 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 we've had a couple hundred people read it at this church already, and everybody has been blown away by this book. It has got very practical advice on how to journal, on how to read the Bible, why we read the Bible. It is very motivating. And I know you're all going to go to the library after this. It's constantly signed out. So you know what? Spend the 15, 20 bucks. You know what? It's good for your soul, okay? Spend the 15, 20 bucks and buy it. It's called The Divine Mentor and sort of journaling habit. And then the third thing I would challenge you to do this week is uh, pray with at least one person to receive God's love. So do it at your cell meeting this week or go to the, go to the after service prayer right after, this, after the worship's done. With one person this week, sit down with someone at cell, wherever, in family, and you just say, Jesus, I want to receive your love. Then do some listening prayer and pray for each other. God's love, God is everything, amen? Well, let's worship him. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and then we're going to worship him. Jesus, it really is all about you. And you have loved us. We have not loved you back. We have not received your love. And I pray, Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to your love this week. I pray that we would experience you in new and fresh ways. I pray that we would explore you in new and fresh ways and get to know the joy. This is eternal life. You said this, Jesus, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in our lives this week. In your name we pray. Amen.